0: Welcome to The Social Work Social. My name is Melanie Matthews and I'm a registered social worker. Together, we're going to be exploring the world of mental health treatment by listening to stories and having conversations with a diverse group of social workers. And you're going to have to listen to me quite a bit too. Before we get started, there are two disclaimers about this podcast. The first one is, the information presented here should only be considered completely accurate for Ontario, Canada. There are different rules and regulations for mental health professionals, including social workers, in other parts of Canada and the rest of the world. So make sure you're doing your research to be sure that you know about the regulations specific to your area. The second disclaimer is that nothing presented here should be considered mental health treatment or medical advice. If you're interested in learning more or perhaps getting some of this treatment for yourself, make sure to consult an expert in your area your family doctor is usually a good place to start. In this episode, we're going to be joined by Melissa. Melissa has worked in several practice areas of social work and had very different experiences in each job she's worked. There are a number of factors that influence the way social workers experience their work, and Melissa is going to share how some of those factors affected her. There is no trigger warning for this episode.
1: Okay, hello. My name is Melissa Berbanzo. I am a bachelor of social work and a master of social work. I did my undergrad at King's University College and I did my master's at the University of Windsor with a specialization in child mental health and family therapy. Um, I am a Jamaican African American social worker, which I find is very important in my field as there just aren't really many of us and, you know, occasionally you come across a client that's really happy to see someone that looks just like them. Yeah, I grew up in the US. So I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona. I moved to Canada halfway through grade nine and was able to settle and create a life here. So I stayed, I finished school here, but I definitely want to continue engaging in research both in Canada and outside of Canada, just to make sure that the resources are available across the, across the globe. Thank you for joining me.
0: I feel like you have such diverse experience and such an interesting perspective that I'm really happy you decided to be here. Uh, on this podcast with me.
1: Thanks, it's a pleasure. We definitely went through it all in third and fourth year, so it's really good to reconnect to.
0: (laughs) So I know that because we did our undergrad together, I know a little bit of your background, um,
1: but I know that you started off in psychology, right? Yes, I started off in psychology with the possible intentions of doing clinical psychology, um, maybe a future in law, but I found that social work allowed a more direct connection to the things that I wanted to do and the changes that I wanted to make in the lives of other people. That way, it's just, I don't want to say an easier way to get to therapy, but a more direct route to get to therapy and change and um, being an influence in the lives of those that truly need it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I feel like social workers have such a unique perspective, Um, Mm -hmm. not that psychologists aren't um, like super valuable and have a lot of really unique perspectives themselves, but social workers just do have this really ingrained
1: sense of social justice. Of course, and the learning is quite different. Um, For example, I know that you remember in first and second year, we had classes on basic listening skills and we didn't know how they'd make four months of basic listening skills a thing and it was definitely possible and it's definitely incredibly important. So we put a different touch on everything and even the psychologists within my um, my own agency are realizing that, again, we have very similar educations but very different ways of approaching situations. Uh, Talking about
0: your place of work, I know that you're in a very different place than you were when we initially graduated. So can you tell us a bit
1: about um,
0: your work experience right now?
1: Sure. Um, My current work or my um, fourth year and previous work?
0: Let's start with your fourth year and previous
1: work. Okay, so in my fourth year and my first job out of my master's, I was working in a hospital here in London. Uh, I was working in the mental health hospital on a very complex unit in which um, there was a psychiatric diagnosis as well as an intellectual disability. Um, For my fourth year, I was there for the entire eight-month duration of school, and after my master's, I was there for two and a half months. (laughs) Uh, it's a it's a very different experience, as the role of a social worker is more case management, but it's not always outlined as such. So in the case management position, we've been in charge of um, admissions, discharges, and pretty much everything in between. So making sure that we have all of those clinical case consultations. Um, there's some meetings that came up that I didn't even know I was facilitating until the day of where you kind of had to scramble and plan Um, Sometimes you might be pulled aside to help on another unit. Um, It it gets a little bit complex and it's not always clearly outlined what your job is. So I would love to tell you what my job was, but I don't always know what it was. Um, I would have preferred to do direct intervention and family supports as having a family member in the mental health hospital can be Very challenging, especially when you become their substitute decision-maker. So when they are no longer able to make their financial and medical um, decisions, now you've been put in the role where you have to make these decisions for them, but you don't understand how you got this title, um, why you have this title, or what decisions you have to make exactly. So I would have preferred to do more family support, but I'm not entirely sure that that was the role of a social worker. I thought it was, but uh, it got a little cloudy sometimes.
0: Yeah, it sounds really, really confusing. And what was the environment like working in the hospital? Because I know it's not always the most comfortable place for patients in the hospital, but what was it like working there?
1: So I do have to start by saying that it was, my experiences I think are tailored specifically to my unit that I was on. Um, My aunt was a psychologist, or excuse me, psychiatrist in the same hospital. So whenever I popped down to her unit, everyone was incredibly excited to see me. Um, Everyone was really friendly and open and warm. The security guards were amazing. The cafeteria staff were amazing. Everyone was just very bubbly and excited, which made me bubbly and excited all the time. I found that my unit particularly was a bit more stressful. Um, I found that the culture of the unit in this particular place, it was very traditional. It was traditional nurses that have been doing this job in this particular unit for the last 30 years. Um, I think the only two young fresh faces were below the age of 30, including myself, and they didn't like that other fresh fresh face either, and that was technically their boss, so it gets very complicated. Um, In that particular setting, I didn't feel overly welcomed in the slightest, and I found that I was almost too eager to come in and do my best and put my all in, but I think some people on that unit would have preferred that I just sit down and stay quiet and just do as they needed me to do. Um, where I learned to be present to everyone because you build a rapport by being present. I think it was almost assumed that I should just stay at my desk, which is very far away from the clients and the patients, where you don't know that I'm here unless you see me in the nursing station. So I would prefer to be open and do any notes that I have to do in a space with other people and be very open to helping. And then, um, unfortunately, that wasn't viewed as the best way to spend my time. Even though all of the work was being done, it still wasn't viewed as the best way to spend my time.
0: I've never worked in a hospital personally, but in my experience working on multidisciplinary teams, I do find that on these really traditional units or these really traditional workplaces, there tends to be kind of a strict hierarchy.
1: Absolutely. There is a very strict hierarchy. And I think depending on who is at the top of that hierarchy, the people below them can be treated very differently. Um, whereas, again, it could possibly be my personality or my generation, but I feel that everyone has something to bring to the table and there should be no hierarchy. Everything should be very lateral decision-making. We should be doing it together as opposed to one person over the other. Um, In this particular hierarchy, there was a difference to authority towards the doctors. So at the end of the day, the doctors are making all of the decisions, albeit their coordinator was also there, who was usually a seasoned nurse that is running several units. But It was always the psychiatrist and the psychologist that were making the decision to the point where at times I would ask a question about care and I would just be blatantly ignored in front of 10 other people. This particular individual pretended that I wasn't sitting there and another psychiatrist had to get involved and just kind of mention what they were doing, only after which they didn't respond to the claims, but they did at least start acknowledging my presence in that room.
0: Wow. Like it's so... Loaded thinking about that. And also, I mean, historically, social work has not been viewed as a legitimate profession either. And it's interesting to see how that continues to carry over into these like, kind of hospital environments and mm. I assume other environments where there's a hierarchy as well.
1: Of course, and I find that so perplexing sometimes because if you go into any room, any agency that has a social worker, we are so relied upon that if there was no social worker there, then the jobs wouldn't be getting done as properly as they should be. Not to bring in to um, play the current political climate, but we're talking about police stations being defunded and you know mental health resources. However, if these police stations had social workers, we'd be looking at a very different agency and a di- very different network of people. But if you walk into the hospital, one of the first people that you'll meet is the social worker. So relying heavily on someone and then, I guess, covertly saying that they have no purpose for you. It's always, it's a, it's a tug of war that we're dealing with mentally, that we know that we're important, but then we don't feel that we're important.
0: So I know you have a different job now where the culture is very different. Can you tell us about what it is that you're doing now that you've left the hospital? Of
1: course, I, it goes without saying that I love my job. <laughs> I love my job a million times a day. I even work on my days off, I love my job. Um, I'm currently working at a school for children with learning disabilities. So they've got reading disabilities. Um, and as I described to many people, it means that you know I have grade nines, eights, sevens, so on and so forth, reading at a level that doesn't explain their actual grades. So for example, they're reading at a JK level, but they're 14 years old. Um, we learn that all of our learning from kindergarten to grade three is learning how to read, and then from grade four and up is reading to learn. So if these students don't know how to read, then they're not able to take that next step. So now we just kind of go back to basics. Um, there's a lot of assessments. There's a lot of members on the team. Um, it's a multidisciplinary team, including residence counselors, residence team leads, residence managers, a psychiatrist, a consulting psychologist, a social worker, principal, and many, many teachers. Um, so we all work in tandem for these students to be able to meet all of their needs, both socio-emotional and academic needs.
0: That's amazing. It's amazing to hear that there's such a multidisciplinary team here, mm-hmm. um, and everyone is managing to work like in concert together to be able to provide the best possible care. So you're not a teacher. So what is the role of a social worker in this kind of education setting?
1: So my role would be, again, to meet those socio-emotional needs um, that are impacting the students' learning. So the program that we have places a high cognitive demand on these students because we're literally breaking, breaking it down to basics and asking them to relearn everything. So it's incredibly annoying to sit there and sound out a word that seems as simple as us, or to us as the word house or the word rat. So to learn all of these words that you know out loud but you don't know on paper, And then again, reading is in everything. It is in grade and science class, it is in phys ed, it is in math, it is all day, every day, you are just reading and homework is more reading. (laughs) Um, And then reading programs on top of that. So um, it it can cause a lot of stress, which is totally understandable. I understand that in our curriculum or in at least elementary school curriculums, it's not always reading and uh, academic based. So they're not getting as much homework Um, At their schools as they would be getting here. And as those stresses build up, we see these outer factors and these external factors and the different systems that they're um, that are playing in their lives that are going to impact all of this learning so divorce or home separation or, you know, having to travel three hours from home and spend five days away from home constantly. Um, Being a female and, you know, having your regular monthly experiences when you're not at home. Um, I told my students the other day, it really sucks when you get sick and you can't just be in bed with mom. You're kind of stuck here with me. Um, So I come in with all of those. A lot of students come in diagnosed with ADHD, um, depression, anxiety, anything that isn't just regular teacher business is where I would come into play. Um, I do get to consult with a psychiatrist and psychologist, however, so we all work in tandem as well to make sure that we're meeting the needs of these students. So it could be regular one-hour weekly sessions. It could be bi-weekly check-ins. It's a lot of stress and frustration management and anger management, uh, building positive coping strategies, because it's really, really hard when someone keeps asking you the same question and you just kind of want to rip your hair out and you're like, what do I do? You come to the social worker. We play a game of Uno, go for a walk, take a deep breath, reset, and go back to class.
0: That sounds amazingly
1: flexible. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, it's so flexible. <laughs> Everything uh, can be completely different. It's a very different environment. So I still have my structure, but I get to pick my own schedule. And I'm actually doing psychotherapy, which is what I wanted to do initially. Albeit, my current multidisciplinary team meetings are about four hours on Mondays. And then I have a morning meeting every, every morning with the teachers as well. Mondays are for learning. So 8.30 to 9.30 on a Monday, either I'm delivering a learning presentation or the psychologist is on learning disabilities or anything that we think is really important. So self-harm, what it looks like, how to manage it, the proper reaction. Then I've got a meeting from 10.15 to 12.15, another one from one fifteen to 3.15. And this is all just multidisciplinary meetings. So my Mondays are fairly structured. Every other day is, um, it's going to be, I want to say half of my time at the school is um, spent in direct intervention, and I at least leave three hours for those, you know, one-off crisis moments, brief counseling, checking in, and because my schedule is so flexible, it's not that I can't push one meeting 10 minutes just to help another child.
0: Oh, that's amazing. It's a lot of fun. I feel like I've said that a bunch of times. So this is really amazing. But the environment that you're working in is so much different than just a traditional school environment. Mm -hmm. I feel like it really is an amazing thing to be able to come together as a team to deliver programs and support for, you know, youth who might not be getting that anywhere else. Because where do these kids come from before they end
1: up at the school that you work at? So they are at a regular district school board. So some of my kids are from the Thames Valley District School Board here in London. Um, There's about three or four, if I'm not mistaken, there should be three and one French. So the three LD schools, so learning disabled schools, here in Southwestern Ontario. Um, Families submit applications. The process takes about a year from start to finish because there's meetings, there's tours, there's consultations, there's diagnoses that we need. So it takes about a year and then the students get to spend one year at the program, possibly two depending on the students um, and their level of need. So they're coming from all over and we try and keep them at the school that's closest to them. So for example, one of my students moved, so now they're at a school that's closest to them. Same school district, um, I guess the provincial school board, but different school. And I do realize that I am super biased, um, and I do realize that I really do love my job, but this isn't an environment that is generalized to any other environment. So if I was in your average school board, just as you said, I probably wouldn't be having the same experience. I would probably be having to uh, distribute my time between three schools and not have the same level of relationships as I do with my current students. I've got like 40 students on the average year, so I'm really lucky to know all of them by name, know all of their families, sit and have lunch with them, go outside and play, um, so it's not your typical social work job, but I still love it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's a very different environment than just a, a public school environment um, and the Catholic school environment too. I mm. worked as an educational assistant in both the public schools and Catholic schools for a while after I finished my college degree. Mm. Um, yeah, I don't know if I ever mentioned that. Because Never quite, knew that. <laughs> it was quite short-lived. Um, I didn't last at the Catholic school board for a very long time. They actually fired me three
1: times. I'm just going to leave that one alone. My boss is a um, Catholic school principal, so I'm just going to zip that and put it in my pocket.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Um, it was mostly because I was in university at the same time, and I couldn't pick up as many shifts as they wanted me to. Of course. It wasn't a super understanding or flexible environment. Um, The three times, though, was really weird. They just kept sending (laughs) notices over and over again to remind me that I was fired. I think I was Get it. Thanks. (laughs) Thank you very much. Uh, I think that was just an administrative issue, but it's just really funny to be able to say I was fired three times from
1: one job. That's, oh, goodness. You're like, thanks for rubbing uh, salt in the wound. Not sure that it is salt, but like, thanks for reminding me. It's not like I'm coming in or anything.
0: (laughs) The the social workers in their schools, and, and again, I was an educational assistant. I wasn't a social worker at the schools, but they all just seemed so overworked and flustered all of the time. And I can't imagine what they must be going through right now, given that the school system has changed so much with everyone being at home.
1: It's very hard. Um, The other schools in our program, I should mention, I don't know that you know where Robart School for the Deaf is, but my school is within the same building, so we share a building. So we also have the deaf and hard of hearing students or the students that come to learn sign language because their parents are in the deaf culture. Um, So we have an array of social workers. I think there's about four of us on our team, um, our clinical services department, and then we have one overruling supervisor who is the clinical psychologist. Um, Within our team, now that we're really close-knit, if anyone has a caseload that is way too hard for them to handle, They have the option to ask another social worker to you know take on another case that they have so it's really flexible in the sense that no matter what um, we do get overworked sometimes at no one's fault or um, it's we try and avoid it but we do have the the outs to understand that this person needs help let me just take that student
0: awesome it is really prioritizing and making sure that the student is receiving the best care possible of course so I wanted to ask you kind of one final question. Well, I'm lying. There's two final questions, but the first one is you mentioned at the beginning that your uh, social location as you know, a Jamaican woman has greatly influenced your work. I yes. know that London is quite predominantly white,
1: mm-hmm. so I wanted
0: to know a little bit about
1: your experience. Uh, as a Black individual in London or as a Black social worker in London? Oh, that's an interesting question. Both. Um, just to start as a Black social worker, I find when I say that I'm a social worker, people are just suddenly stunned. And I'm not, I'm, I try and say it's because I'm young, but I, I don't know what they expected me to say. <laughs> like, what job did you think I would have? Um, so it's always, it's one of those situations where people kind of don't know what to say once they find out. Um, people in the Black community are always incredibly Proud that you have accomplished all of this and that you're changing the lives of someone else and that you're pouring your love into people that you don't really even know and you just wanna get out there and change. So it's always really helpful in that regard. Um, but growing up black in London wasn't easy. I got lucky because uh, because we are such a small community. I believe the last 2016 census said there's 11% of the population here in London is black. Um, so within that population, as you can imagine, I know almost all of the black social workers. <laughs> So it got a little bit easier for me because whenever I'm having a problem or it comes to race, um, albeit my clinical supervisor is amazing. He has an LGBTQ plus two plus background, he's super inclusive and he's incredibly candid with me and he's honest with me. He's not black. So I have to call a black social worker and then I just rant to them for a second. I'm like, look, I am not your token. I cannot do all of your anti-black racism presentations, but like I will. Um, so I find that not everyone can quite understand where I'm coming from. and it's again those moments where you begin to second guess yourself a little bit because you are black and you have dealt with an entire system in which you don't know if it's affirmative action or if you're actually really qualified for this job. Um, and albeit you get praise after doing it for a little while. And people qualify their sentences with, you know, um, I thought you were young at first, but then I see you with the students and I think you really know what you're doing. And I'm like, is that what you thought? And I, I, mm, uh, it's just hard to it's hard to navigate because you don't want to make everything a race thing, but you're also very aware that you are the only black person in a giant school.
0: Absolutely. And I think that the age thing is becoming a little bit less excusable as time goes on. Because Mm -hmm. I know you were very young when you started the social work program. I think you might have been the youngest person in our program.
1: I think I was the youngest person. I believe I was 18 going on 19 when we first started.
0: Yep. But the problem is it's been a few years since then. (laughs) It's
1: been (laughs) almost half a decade.
0: (laughs) We're not as young as we used to be. So the fact that people are continuing to try to use that excuse feels like it's not ringing quite as true anymore.
1: Exactly. And it feels like they want to say something else, but they're seeing the age. Mm -hmm. Just like, okay, so what you're saying is what you're seeing, which is okay, but I also know that you're seeing something else. Or just those moments where... um, you know, I, we had a guest speaker and he was talking about linguistics and learning and second languages. And I mentioned the Jamaican dialect. I said, you know, it's broken English. She goes, Oh no, it's not. I'm like, okay, let me try this again. It is literally broken English. The word Potswa means broken English. Please don't argue with me on this one. My mom speaks fluently in Potswa, but the grammar doesn't always make sense. Like it's, it's not grammatically correct. He goes, Oh, I I tend to disagree. I'm like, okay, but you're not Jamaican. So I don't know how you're disagreeing with me. But again, just a guest speaker in a room looking at me and then seeing that I speak well and saying, well, you're not impacted by your culture. You speak so well. And I'm like, well, I kind of have to. I'd like to come to work and speak Batwa. No one's going to understand me. There's no point. (laughs) Um, So it's those moments where you start to realize that you are this person in this larger arena and there's just one of you. Um, And then it's also a bit, I don't want to say... It's discouraging, but it's a lot of weight to be put on one person's shoulders because then you have to be the best at what you're doing because you don't want to be that person that gives your entire racial community a bad name. And you're just one person, but you're also probably one of the only people, one of the only black people that these people are encountering within the week or within the month or like all freaking year. Like you're one black person, they're probably not seeing a whole lot. So again, it's just huge weight on your shoulder even as a kid it's a giant weight on your shoulder as an adult it's a giant weight you have to learn to be diplomatic in everything that you say because if you say something offensive someone's going to think you're sassy as opposed to responding to something that was offending so you have to be gentle all the time and sometimes I don't want to be gentle but I don't have a choice because I'm going to be the angry black lady that's snapping her fingers and shaking her head as she's talking to you even though I'm probably sitting there with my fingers and hands crossed so (laughs) Uh, it's I love being black. It's just it has its days where it's hard What kind of recommendation
0: would you give for you know, someone like me as a white
1: social worker to be a better ally in the workplace? Um, for an individual from the black community because you know how to be an ally in everything else <laughs> um, So in one of the if you wouldn't mind just giving me a quick second in one of the um, Presentations that I'm doing if I could find it. I was hoping to deliver it to other social workers and teachers. Um, It's really hard to know how to be an ally, but I think one of my questions or that I pose to the teachers is, are you aware of the experiences of these individuals and can they come talk to you? So if you're handling or watching a situation in which someone is being racially discriminated against, they're most likely going to call a parent or a friend or another Black person. But I found that the most gentle way to show someone that you're there is just to say, hey, I saw that. And if you need someone to back you up as a witness, if you decide to go report it, let me know. Something as simple as that, not a, hey, do you wanna talk about it? Or hey, I'm so sorry that happened. It's just a, that was not okay. I saw that and I'm on your side with this one, that was wrong. Or let's say it's a student or um, a younger client of yours and you hear about this experience. I told my teachers to maybe bridge the gap between that student and the parent and the situation that's happening and just say, hey, mom and dad, I'm not sure what I could say to the student without making them uncomfortable. I'm probably not the first person they're gonna go to about this kind of situation. I just wanted to let you know that this is happening. I will handle it on the the school end, but this might be a conversation you wanna have at home in case they didn't bring it up. Um, If my teachers had done that, it would have been a very, very different situation. And lastly, just own your mistakes. It's okay to blunder. It's okay to say something slightly offensive. It's okay to qualify a statement before you make it and just say, I'm sorry if this is offensive or rude or ignorant. I just wanted to ask you a quick question. If I know that you're coming in with a reflective mindset and you're trying to make sure that you are being as honest and gentle as possible in your questions because questions are safe, then I will always know that you're not coming from a bad place. It's when I have to question your intentions and whether you realize how your intentions are coming across that I have a bit of a problem because that's where the ignorance is. That's where the microaggressions are. That's where telling me that I sound sophisticated or you know I talk white is going to be very, very offensive when you can't realize that you're being offensive. And if I tell you to say, I'm so sorry and work to not do it again. And it's okay to say, you know what? I might make that mistake again, but you just let me know, absolutely. But when you're not open to that change or that experience or that learning, then it makes it very hard to be or to see someone as an ally, no matter how close you are with that person. And I had a best friend do the same thing where everything she said was coming out in Ebonics and I'm speaking just like this. And I said, at some point, it's a relationship that I couldn't be a part of because you're my best friend and you're portraying me in this light to other people. I don't know that it's something that we can continue. So as much as she said she was an ally, she unknowingly kept making that mistake over and over and over again and was completely ignorant to the fact that this is what she was doing and completely unaware, even when I brought it to her attention. So if you truly want to be an ally, we have to keep looking into ourselves and reflecting and making sure that we are genuinely trying to do things differently. Sounds like the most important thing is really just to try and to just continue learning. Yeah, that's all we can ask. There are so many many ways to mess up. Some people are African-Canadian. Some people are African-American. I don't like the term colored. I prefer black. Other black people don't like to be called black. Just call me Melissa. Just call me Melissa and just try. We can't know everything. We can't learn every culture. You can't learn every food on the menu at any kind of restaurant. It's okay, but just try and maybe focus on the black people in front of you the ones that you have that relationship with. Because if we're trying to learn all of the cultures on the continents of Africa, then we're probably going to be doing a whole lot and nothing at all. Start small.
0: I feel like there's something that I remember just as you were talking. And I don't know if you remember, because it was all the way back in like third year, but we were constantly working on all of these group projects, Mm -hmm. which still gives me like traumatic flashbacks, oh I think, gosh. to all of the group projects. Yep. But you said something to me one day about your frustration with nobody ever remembering how to spell your last name. And oh, I, don't think, I don't think you took me seriously as someone who wanted to work with you until I went out of my way to learn how to
1: spell your last name, which I can still do. By the way. <laughs> Thank you. No, it's very appreciative. Um, and I I again, I can't find my notes, but I mentioned that to the teachers too, is just normalize our names. Mm -hmm. It's okay that you don't know how to say it. Honestly, though, you think you're kind of teaching students to read, so maybe you can send out the letters. (laughs) But it's one of those situations where, I don't know if you remember, I had to write my last name out phonetically at graduation, and they still said it wrong. And I'm like, it's written out phonetically for you, (laughs) so that you cannot mess this up. And at the same time, my mom just kind of looks at me quizzically like, how did they... How do they mess that up? Uh, something, it's really simple, but no, no one was willing to learn the last name, spell the last name, pronounce the last name. I was just Melissa B. And I was like, okay, my last name is Bay Dubon, so it's, it's long, but it's easy. <laughs> but yep, something as simple as that. And goodness, I could speak to all of the offhand experiences that we had and I had as a black student in university, but it's not, almost not even worth getting into. And <laughs> still the poster child, by the way. Yeah. If you Google Kings, my face just keeps popping up. It's been three years. (laughs) It's been three years, almost four years since I graduated and my face is still on everything. There were lots of really great things about Kings, but their cultural diversity was not quite one of them. No, their cultural diversity was me and (laughs) Eddie. So one final question,
0: if you could sum up, what you want people to know about social workers in just one or two sentences. What would you want people to know?
1: We are exhausted, but that will never change how much we put into our job and how much we love everyone, including people that we don't know. So maybe stopping and getting some medium coffee one day would be really sweet. <laughs> it goes a long way to show that you're thinking of us. But again, we're exhausted, but we love everyone and we'll never stop.
0: Well, thank you very much for joining me. This was a really great interview lots to think about from this so again just thank you my pleasure thank you so much to melissa for participating in this interview her unique experiences and insights into different working conditions are important to understand as is the way her identity impacts her work as a social worker next week we're going to talk to cassandra who's a current bachelor of social work student she's going to tell us about her experience of starting her social work journey in university By sharing information and stories, The Social Work Social hopes to inspire you to take action to reduce the stigma of mental health and help normalize seeking mental health treatment. Over the next week, consider what you can do to help. There are so many things you can do based on your strengths, skills, and comfort. Look up mental health initiatives in your area and see if there are any volunteer opportunities. Or maybe take a mental health first aid or suicide intervention course. Even just a kind social media post or an encouraging word to someone struggling with their mental health can make a huge difference to that person. Thank you for listening to The Social Work Social. Tune in again next Friday for another episode. Thank you to Taking It Global, the Government of Canada, and the Canada Service Corps for generously supporting this project. If you have a simple project idea to support your community, Taking It Global is looking to support youth who are inspired with ideas and ready to take action through their youth-led community service grants. Apply for a Rising Youth grant today at risingyouth.ca.